Well, good morning. My name is Kevin Barra, and I'm a youth pastor here at Grace. And you may notice I'm not Trey. Uh, not trying to fool anyone there. Trey is actually with a bunch of people at Grace Bible Church that went to New York as part of uh, to study about uh, faith and works. Tim Keller's there giving a, um, a conference, putting on a conference to, to learn more about faith and works. But as I've watched their Facebook posts, I'm wondering if they're not just enjoying New York or uh, if actually you know, going to a conference at all. So give him a hard time when he gets back. Was this just like a mid-semester break, you know, a little jaunt to New York for Trey Marcy? But anyway, so he's there. For, pray for him as he's come back. Um, but I, I said I'm a youth pastor. Uh, my, uh, I have three and three-quarters children. Uh, I have a five-year-old daughter named Peyton. I have a four-year-old son named Micah. I have a two-year-old son named Jesse, and I have Quattro on the way. My beautiful, lovely wife, Hillary, is carrying my fourth child, and we are going surprise on this one. So we're very excited about surprise. Number four, November 30th. Count it down. Three weeks from today is the scheduled C-section, and so right after Thanksgiving, you'll be kind of coming back from Turkey coma, and uh, we will be not sleeping for the next month or so as we raise our fourth baby. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be jumping into Luke chapter 4. That's going to be our jumping off point. Uh, We are going to be looking at the gospel in continuing our soteriology series, um, Understanding Salvation. So I'm going to read a little bit for us, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will launch in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Luke chapter 4, starting verse, I'm sorry, 16, 16. And he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he had rolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the intendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. A moment where we get to come together and worship to you, to declare that you are a good father who has sent the best you had for us through the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we study the gospel, we take a look at what it actually means. I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to see it afresh. Sometimes old news can merely feel like old news, but I pray that the gospel would feel and be seen as good news this morning. So Lord, I pray that you would guide our hearts, you would guide our minds as we study and open up your word. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Well, growing up in the 90s, there were several crazes that hit the scene. And one of them, the craze that I never really got or really got to be a part of, was uh, this craze called stereograms. Anyone familiar with these things? Uh, Basically, it's these pictures of dots. 
And some people, um, and I'm just taking this by faith because I have no idea if this is actually true or not, they can look at the stereogram and see the random shapes. And if you stare at it long enough, like peer into the soul of the picture, right? Some image will come forth. Now, I put titles below because I can't see any of them. Apparently, this is a duck. Anyone? Anyone? Hands can see the duck that's being... Oh, one. Okay. Yeah. It was so funny. In the 90s, all the malls were covered with stores with these, these little stereograms. Here's another one. Uh, this one is a guitar. See it? Got a, got a pier and it'll come to your forefront. Okay, here's another one. Uh, this one, a uh, little scary, come after uh, thing, or holiday, Halloween season. This is a skull. I have no idea. I never see it. I have no idea if a skull. It's just abstract art to me. And then another one. Uh, this one apparently is a teapot. It's like those splot, you know, dot things that they try to, get, you know, learn about you. And, I, and so this is the last one. This one apparently is a tricycle, for those of you that can see it clearly. Anyone see the tricycle? Anyone? Ha- oh, sweet. There's, there's one. Yeah, for me, I have never been able to see or understand what those images were trying to communicate. I never got it. I remember one time I went to the mall and I'm standing there with my family. My sisters and all of us are standing uh, in a store in the mall that has all of these pictures kind of in different areas and they're showing different things and if you stare long enough into them, some image will come forth. And I remember standing there and I'm like, I'm going to see you picture, what are you? And as I'm staring deep into the picture, I'm like, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then my sister comes to me and goes, you know, that's like the cross of Jesus. That's like Jesus on the cross. And I'm like, yeah, I'm getting splotchy nothingness. That's all that's being communicated to me. I don't see the cross at all. And she's like, I can't believe you can't see that it's Jesus. And I'm like, nothing. And the reason I start there is because I feel like sometimes when we talk about the gospel and we talk about the implications of the gospel, it can feel like we're staring at dots that mean nothing to us. Like, it need, we need someone to kind of connect, like, that's actually a duck, no, that's a train, no, that's Jesus. And we're like, okay, I don't really get it. And so often I hear, as I interact with college students, um, and as I interact with youth, the truths of the gospel are true, ethereally, like, like, as an idea. But the impact of the truths of the gospel often miss our hearts. There's been lots of studies done on millennials, like your generation, people that are growing up uh, right now, right within your age demographic, and there's all sorts of debates about who you are and how it is, you know, what it's like to reach you. And there's one study that's come out by Pew Research, and, and lots of people have quoted this particular study from Pew Research. And there seems to be, within this age demographic, your friends and family, this growth in the, the nun category when it comes to religious affiliation. This growth of nuns, like I, not like nuns, like Catholic, just like no religious affiliation. And as this growth has continued, like it's led all sorts of like church people to get all freaked out. Like, how, why are all these people going for none? Like, I don't get it. And I would say the primary reason is this. Because generally speaking, the church has not done a good job of connecting great truths that we believe into practical action we can engage in. I think generally speaking, there's a miss. It's that we're staring at the truths of the gospel. We don't see how the gospel impacts our heart and life and mind. We we don't see how those truths can impact the life that we live. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take a big picture 
look at what the gospel is designed to do. What, what is the great news that God has been declaring? And then I, in the last part of our message, the last part of our time together, I want to hone in and show us how the gospel is not merely something to be explained, but the gospel is secondly something to be experienced as a reality in your life and in my life. And to jump us off, I'm actually going to get a big running start before we ever hit the gospel of Luke. Because if, you, if you've wondered, where does the gospel begin? It's actually interesting. What, what is the gospel? Well, there's four gospels in your Bible, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what do those gospels record? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But if you look at where most of, most of them start, they start with a genealogy. Like the gospel of, of Matthew in particular starts with the genealogy of the life of Jesus. So what is the gospel? First of all, this. The gospel is a rescue. It's a story of a great rescue. That's supposed to say it's a message of rescue. That's awesome. And Matthew 1, 1 says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You ever wonder why the gospel of Mark or Matthew starts off with a genealogy? Like, what's the big deal? Well, it starts off with these lists of names. And if you're not familiar with the names, you can miss the importance of this. He's the son of David. That means he's the son of a king. And he's secondly, the son of Abraham. And Luke actually starts in a different point. In Luke chapter 4 or 3 with their genealogy. In Luke chapter 3, it says this, that the son, the son of Enos, sure. The son of Seth, okay. The son of Adam, the son of God. So what is the link? What, is, what are these gospel writers trying to show us? Well, they're trying to show us this simple truth. The work of the gospel began much sooner than you think. In fact, it started all the way back in the very, very beginning. You see, humanity was created in perfection in the garden. It was awesome. There was monkeys playing. There was giraffes playing. Like God made Adam and said, go into the garden and you do whatever you want. You name the animals. You hang out. Here's one rule. Don't eat from the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Everything else, yours. And he's like, this is sweet. He's wandering around. And he's like, go name the animals. And it says there's not a helper suitable found for him. And God's like, oh, yeah, you're a mess because you're alone. Let's get someone better in the mix or an additional helper person. Someone strong beside you. And he makes a woman. And the dude busts into poetry. He's like, this is ridiculous. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Whoa, man, you know, it's awesome. And in that moment, they walk with God in the cool of the day. And then something happens in Genesis 3. The serpent deceives the woman who then deceives the man. And chaos breaks in. And in Genesis 3, God lays down the curses on humanity. And he gets to the, to the serpent and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, literally seed, and her offspring, seed. And he shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And at the beginning of the story, you see conflict emerge. Not just marriage conflict, that'll come. But this conflict from the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There's some seed that's coming and this is the beginning of the pain. But there's also a bit of hope. 
There's some good news trapped within there. There's some news of a great victory. And as the New Testament writers are writing um, their particular gospel, they pull the word gospel from Greek culture. You know what the word gospel means in Greek culture? It's good news of a great victory. And the reason they pulled that term is because God has great news of a great victory that he's weaving through history. You flash forward some time and you get to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, Abraham is given this great promise. You'll be given land, a seed, and a blessing. And Paul takes that moment of seed and says this in Galatians 3.8. He says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Wait a minute. When did God talk to Abraham? Genesis 12. 12 chapters in. When did the gospel of Jesus emerge? Several thousand years later. This verse rocked my world. As I was reading that, I was going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Preach the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, if I was asking you what's the gospel, you'd probably say this. That Jesus lived a perfect life. He died in our place for our sins. And he rose from death. How was that content delivered to Abraham? Paul goes on in, in Galatians three sixteen and says this now. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. See, there's some good news wrapped in this seed that will come. This one that would set everything right. In fact, as you travel through the, through the, the Old Testament, the news of this seed becomes epic. In fact, it gets off the hook when you get to Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet writes this of the one who will come. And you probably read this kind of at church around Christmas time. In Isaiah, it says this, For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, as you move through the Bible, there, there's this hope of this seed that would fix what was broken. There's this great hope that someone would come and set everything right that was broken. You see, the gospel is this, it's first a message of rescue, but it's secondly a mission of rescue. You see, by the time we get to Luke chapter 4, the entire nation of Israel is pumped up about this Messiah that would come, this king that would set everything right. And everyone is, is excited about this Messiah that would come. See, the, the Bible has been silent for over 400 years. And suddenly this obscure carpenter from Nazareth. Nazareth is a podunk town in the middle of nowhere. It's like snook, right? There's like, that's why it's said of Jesus, can anything, come from Naz- anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, can anything good come from snook? The answer is yes, but it would be unexpected, right? And I'm just playing, like there's great things there. Sorry if you're from Snook. Um, apologize later on. 
And when Jesus stands up, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes to the synagogue. And he says he grabs the scroll and he opens up the scroll to the book of Isaiah. And he finds this place in Luke. And he says, look, God has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To bring good news. Okay, well, he's quoting Isaiah. There are tons of messianic prophecies in Isaiah. What, what is Jesus saying? And he says, he has sent me to proclaim release of the captives. I'm bringing freedom. And he says, I'm going to bring recovery of sight to the blind. I'm going to bring healing. And I'm here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It's basically the year of Jubilee. For the Jewish people, this is awesome, by the way, just a little tidbit for you. For the Jewish people, every 50th year, every one of their debts was forgiven. It was called the year of Jubilee. Like you would be saying, this is Jubilus. If that was your, like, can you imagine every 50 years, every one of your debts is forgiven? And he says, look, th- this is what I'm declaring is going to happen. This is what I'm bringing. And then Jesus closes the scroll and says that this is fulfilled in your hearing. I told you I'm doing this. This is what's happening. And if you were to keep on reading in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, you'll see that Jesus wreaks havoc on, on three areas. On disease, on the demonic, and eventually on death. See, he heals disease. Peter's mom is sick and he's like, no, no, not, not anymore. There's demon, men that are demon-possessed walking up and he's like, yeah, yeah get, get out of here. Get. And they, they're like screaming, it's the son of David. He's like, shut it, leave. And everyone looking at Jesus is going, this is unlike anything we've seen. This is unlike anything we've experienced. This is totally different. And what's the point? Jesus is saying, I've come to bring rescue to you. And the Bible tells us that, that there's really two things that are holding us captive. There's Satan and there's sin. Second Corinthians 4 says this, that humanity, in whose mind the, the, the case of this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, there's a blindness that that Satan and the demonic forces have have brought in the world. There's a reason we can't see. And so there's a reason a war had to be fought. There was a reason Jesus had to come and declare freedom is because there there was an oppression over us, this demonic oppression in the world. And the truth is the powers of the spiritual forces are alive and active in the world today. But secondly, there's a problem of sin within In John chapter 8, Jesus says, look, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Meaning, when you sin, it's slavery. It holds you. It's like you can't get out of its grip. And Jesus says, I'm coming to bring rescue to you. The good news of the gospel is a rescue. And if you think about it, every great story you ever ever heard is a story of one who steps into rescue. It is. So if you were to watch the movie Gladiator, gentlemen, fans, anyone, Gladiator? Thank you. Ladies, anyone? I don't even know that. Oh, yeah, awesome, okay. What's great about the movie Gladiator? We see this guy who's a, who's a general, and there's a corrupt king who's in power. 
And Maximus Aurelius steps up in front of that corrupt king and says, I'm going to stand against you and I'm going to bring freedom to this nation. Braveheart. Fans. Little William Wallace, uh, you know. What's awesome about the movie Braveheart? The love that he has for this woman, right? That's beautiful. But not only that, a man who would lay down his life to save a nation. Iron Man. Can I get a little more modern here? So in the first Avengers movie, uh, it, there's, there's Tony Stark, and he's a millionaire playboy, right, who's brilliant beyond imagination, can create incredible things, had all this power at his fingertips, right? And what they say to him is, look, you're only in it for you. You will never give yourself to anything greater, only if it benefits you, Tony Stark. And what happens at the end of the movie? He flies into outer space, stops the alien invasion, in the process, sacrificing himself for the sake of the world. You're seeing a theme, okay? <laughs> Harry Potter. Oh, that would get everyone else. I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> See, there's a lot of debate around Harry Potter, though, right? Because Harry Potter, uh, in the Christian world, they're like, okay, that's witches and witchcraft. That's evil. We probably ought not read that to our children. But what's interesting in an interview, at the, when she wrote her last book, she says this in the interview. It's, it's actually pretty eye-opening. J.K. Rowling says this. To me, the religious parallels have always been obvious, she said. But I never wanted to talk too openly about it because I thought it might show people who just wanted the story where it was going. She says in chapter 16 of Deathly Hollows titled Godric's Hollow, on his parents' tombstone, he reads the quote, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Well, on another tombstone that Dumbledore's mother and sister, he reads, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are very British books. So on a very practical note, Harry was going to find biblical quotations on tombstones, Rowling explained. But I think these two particular quotations he finds on the tombstones at Godric's Hollow, they sum up, they almost epitomize the entire series. See what she's saying? I stole from Jesus. That's what she's saying, right? <laughs> she's saying this great story of someone who would sacrifice themselves for the sake of others, that is an epic story that has been woven through history. It is one of the greatest stories ever told. And it's not just some story out there. It's our story. The reason we go to the movies and want to watch the same storyline play again and again is because it's not just something out there. It's something that connects to the deepest heart of us. We all long for a rescuer to come in and save us from our situation. See, the gospel is good news of a great rescue. But secondly, the gospel is good news of a great restoration. See, do you know where the story ends? You ever read the back of the book? Some of you are, are, are only read stories like from beginning to end. I, I pity you because I want to know how it ends. So I look at the table of contents. I see what the author is, where he's headed. And then I will read the last pages. I'm that guy, right? And I will tell you this. You have to do it with the Bible because if you don't know where it's going, you won't be able to find your place in the middle of it. So where does the story end? Revelation 21, 
as fluffed as it looks, here's what Revelation 21 says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What does that mean, gentlemen? It means when you're at one, di- one day, when you're standing at the aisle and you see that girl who for whatever reason said yes to you, come around the corner and she walks forward, there's only one response you're gonna have. <sighs> Something like that. For me, I looked at the, the officiant, my friend of mine, Derek, and I go, huh? and he goes, look at your bride. And I'm like, okay, you know, and I looked ahead and I see my beautiful bride walking down in the beauty and glory that she brought. And what God is saying is, look, when I bring everything together, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and new Jerusalem coming down and everyone is going to stand in awe at this moment. Verse three. And behold, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Isn't that a great ending? Isn't that a great ending to the story? Not only do we have a rescuer, we have someone that's going to restore and there's two restorations that need to take place. A restoration of a broken world and the restoration of our broken hopes. You see, it's a new heaven, it's a new earth that's coming down. It's a reformed earth. And he says the second piece. I'm gonna wipe away every tear from their eyes. All of the broken hopes that we feel will be fixed when he comes. Tim Keller in a book, um, The Reason for God, talks about the miracles that Christ performed. And he says this in this book. He says, we modern people think of miracles as suspensions of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger and death in it. But Jesus has come to redeem where it was wrong and heal the world where it was broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has the power but also the wonderful foretaste of what, is going to be, what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. See, if you were to think about your heart for a moment, you would see that there's a brokenness that has, that has corrupted the world. You'd see it in your parents' relationships. You'd see it in your friendships. You would see it in the tsunamis that hit. You would see it in the wars that break out. And there's something within every one of your hearts and minds that screams out, will someone fix it? Will it be the next presidential candidate? Will it be some governmental system? Will something fix what has gone severely wrong in our world? And if you look into your hearts and minds, you long for restoration. And what Tim Keller is saying, what Jesus is doing by the life that he lived is to show, look, there's going to be a point when I heal disease. There's going to come a point when I rule in peace. There's going to come a point when I come back and restore everything that was broken. 
C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, The Problem of Pain, deals with some of these larger issues of pain that we, we face. And he writes this very telling quote. He says this, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering if our heart, in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. And then he goes on to say, every activity you engage in, you long for something greater. And so you have a great win. You're in a sporting event and you have a great win. And even in the midst of that win, you're like, I, I wish there was something more. You got into A&M, right? Some of you were very excited to get into A&M. All the papers you wrote, all the exams you took, all the SATs that you sat through, like eight or ten SATs to get the score, to get in. And once you got here, was it all that you hoped it would be? Did it meet all of your wildest expectations? Or do you go, nah, I got this test, I hate this professor, oh my gosh, my roommates are miserable. Like, I, I mean, honestly, you see, even in getting it, there's something bigger than the it that you long for. When all of your hopes will be met. C.S. Lewis goes on to write, there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, give it to you but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us, which at first, when we first fall in love or first think of a foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of the world of what we call ordinary unsuccessful marriages or holidays or careers, like that marriage fell apart, that holiday was horrible. Whatever. I'm not talking about those. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped in that first moment of longing which seems to fade away in the reality of it. You see, the desires of your heart for restoration go well beyond anything you can imagine. And Jesus promises good news of rescue and great news of restoration of all things. And lastly, the gospel needs to be a reality within your hearts. A reality within your hearts. What do you mean by that, Kevin? Well, this is where I want to drive it home. Those are great truths that we can hold at a distance. But can the reality of the gospel really impact the reality of my day-to-day -day life? And the answer is simply yes. The reality of the gospel should give us the strategy to walk through the circumstances of life. In our last kind of 10 minutes together, I just want to give you three areas of life where this great truth can have a great impact in us. And the first area is this, in your personal life. See, in your personal life, there, there's things that you're walking through right now, and, I, and there's two that I'm going to hone in on in your personal life. There's some of you that have insecurity and some of you that are struggling with your identity. Some of you are struggling with insecurity and some of you are struggling with your identity. What is the root of insecurity? Well, we could delve into all sorts of issues of what's going on in, in your heart of hearts, what your parents did or didn't do, whatever. But I would say this, the ultimate reason why we feel insecure is because either we, don't, we feel unloved or we feel like we don't have a place or a purpose in this world. Why do some of us struggle with our identity? Well, I'd say... Many uh, psychologists have come out with what's called a quarter-life crisis. 
And they say basically people in college, people your age, have this moment where you go, what's next for me? How do I fit into this world? Where is all of this headed? Oh my gosh, I need a job like next week. You know, like those types of crises that you face. And in all of this, we go, okay, how does the gospel speak into these personal struggles I walk through? Well, Ephesians 2 says this, and you know this verse. For grace you've been saved through faith. The salvation we need is only a gift. It's nothing you do, nothing you earn. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's, it's just something you accepted, not as the result of works so that no one can boast. You know why that speaks to your insecurities? Because insecurities are often answering or asking the question, am I enough? The answer is, look, God loves you so much he sent his best for you. He sent his son to die for you, not as the result of works. This isn't a performance-based gospel. This is grace-based. And he sent his son to die for you. And we're, secondly, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only are you saved, secondly, God has a plan for your life, a purpose. See, you have a place in this world, you have a purpose in this world, and you have a path that God is leading you in. You don't need to worry about your insecurities or your identities. Look, your identity is found in Christ. And if you believe that God really loved you enough to give his best for you, you can believe that he has a path and a plan for you. If he's working all things together for good, surely he's working the good in your life. Secondly, not only personal life, but in your relational life. You ever, anyone have struggles with roommates? Anyone? Anyone? I had insane roommates in college. They weren't Christians, uh, but it wouldn't matter. I think you have Christian crazy roommates too. And I think so often we're like, okay, how do I love this person like Jesus would love this person? He would send them to hell. I think that's what, what Jesus <laughs> would, would do to that person. Especially this is what First John says. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. Okay, not that your roommate loves you. Not that he's worthwhile. Not that she's worthwhile. Not that you have great relational things. Okay, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. What is the fuel that fuels your love? Is it you? Is it this person? No. God so loved you that you move in love. Or if you have struggles in, with your significant other or in relationships, I give you Ephesians 5, and it says this, and it's very popular. Everyone loves this. Women submit. Very popular. And then the verse goes on to say this. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her washing her and cleansing her. How did Jesus cleanse the church? He died. He gave everything. You know why you're having relational struggles? Because you're either not submitting or you're not dying. (laughs) If you submit like Jesus did to the Father, if you die like Jesus did in giving everything for for another, if you live that way, Jesus will not only be the author, but the perfecter worked in your heart of your faith. See, all of these are gospel issues. 
What about the general circumstances of life? What about my, my future or my, my struggles with, with where life is going or the trials? This is my favorite passage. Romans 8 has been rocking me this semester. And we're going to end big, and we're going to end with a response. Paul says this, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger? Like, why are they naked? I don't know. But will anything separate us from the love of God? No. He says right before this, hey, God gave his son for you. How will he not easily give you all things? And at the end he says this, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything. What, what about, no, not that either. What about, if I, no, not that one either. Anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the gospel? That God has sent a rescuer for you. That he is restoring all things. And so whether, you know, whether you're struggling with your personal life your relational life, or the circumstances that flood your life. God says, look, I've sent my son for you. Will you see what he did and apply it to your circumstances? Because I tell you what, there is a gospel truth to every struggle you face. You just might need to see it new for the first time. So this weekend I went to... uh, the mall, not our mall. I went to the uh, the outlet mall over in Cypher uh, area. The outlet mall, beautiful little outlet mall, mall over there. And I'm there with my two sons, uh, Micah and Jesse. And if you've ever been shopping with a four-year-old and a two-year-old, it is quite an experience, right? And for me, I shop in the mall like a mission, you know, like a soldier to get items and to get home, right? That's my trajectory in the mall. But my sons had, did not have that mission in mind. So we walk into one store, and they're like, this is awesome. And they run everywhere. They're like, look at that shirt. Look at there. And we like, I'm like, okay, boys, so we're going to go to the dressing room because I can't leave you out there to be nuts. And so we go into the dressing room, and we all lock ourselves in this little tiny dressing room. I sit them up there. I try my clothes. And they're like, we can climb out under the dressing room. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And I'm like... Y'all are insane. And we go to another store and I'm like, okay, I got to grab these things. And they're just like, oh my gosh. And they're like amazing. And we're walking through and they're like, in the design of the walls, like stars and pictures of animals and stuff like that. And my little two-year-old son just like, star, 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 Mickey. You know, like that's what's going on. And I'm like, I'm like, Jesse, uh, focus in, buddy. We got stuff to do here. And as I thought about it, I went, so often I get so focused on me and the agenda that I'm chasing that I miss the beauties that God is speaking to me. And I think so often when it comes to the truths of the gospel, we're like, yeah, yeah, I already know that. Check that box. I got another thing coming. And we don't see how these beautiful truths can make a dramatic impact on your life and heart. And so my prayer in the small group time, that you would take some time to really say, okay, what, what are the struggles that I'm having? Now, how is it that the gospel can speak strongly and wisely 
into that struggle that I'm facing. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you for these groups. And Lord, I pray that as we get into discussions, these great truths would make a great impact on our lives. And we might be able to see how to apply the gospel to the individual circumstances that we're facing. So Lord, I pray that you would guide our leaders as they lead us. So near me pray. Amen.